Do you have Kleenex? Kleenex. <laughs> I always have something. <laughs> In the time of the Buddha, there was a nun. Her name was uh, Bada Kundalakesa. Uh, and before her full realization, she was undefeatable uh, in, in Dhamma dialogue. She would take on anyone, any monk or nun or scholar or anyone with knowledge and, um, you know, out-argue them on points, on fine points of the Buddhist teaching, the Dhamma and the uh, higher psychology. And then one day, Sariputta, who was um, the Buddhist chief disciple in wisdom, happened upon her and, and and they met and they had a bit of a dialogue and Sariputta went away, mentioned to the Buddha that he had met Kundalakesa, whom they had heard of because she was well known. And the Buddha had his own intuition about her that she had uh, renounced any refuge in, uh, in sensations, um, mind states, anything in the conditioned world as true peace, security. So he, he knew that, that she was ready um, and advised Sariputta so. And he went back into the area of the, of the monastic compound where she was the following day. And, and uh, Kundalakesa... Um, again engaged in conversation with with Sariputta and the Buddha, actually, but they were both there. And, the, and um, at first it was just with Sariputta, and she, and she was elucidating many points of the Dhamma, and Sariputta just listened silently, and he had just one response, and that was, he said, do you know one? And then the Buddha said to him, well, then, well, that stumped her. And then so she went, turned to the Buddha and kind of looked to him. Uh, and, you know, she was so articulate and ready with words before, but she was just stunned into a silence by Sariputta's penetrating retort of, do you know one? You know, after she said all these other things that she did know. And the Buddha said, better than 1,000 verses is just one verse, knowing of which you find peace. And, and that was all she needed. It was just that moment, you know, she clicked, she let go. She let go of any last remaining attachment to her knowledge, to her vehicle all the things she knew and thought she knew, her last little bit of attachment identification. And then she was free. She was liberated. And, and she became the one uh, that was most...
preeminent for um, meditative capacity to um, teach people just what they needed to hear for their own liberation. Really skilled, in other words, at seeing into people's depth, understanding where they were, feeling their goodness, attuning to their goodness. Tonight's talk is about the uh, Brahma Vihara called Mudita, which is really all about worthiness. Its its um, direct meaning is enduring, abiding joy. And we of, often call it um, empathetic joy. It's the kind of joy where we attune to wherever there is delight in nature, in living things in the world, beauty, uh, and of course, uh, within ourselves. It's opposite to, to know what these Brahma-viharas are. We've been emphasizing the near and far enemies. So the far enemy, or the opposite, is envy and jealousy. We live in a culture largely today, in the last few thousand years, uh, you know, of extreme emphasis on measurement, analysis, competition, um, uh, comparing, analyzing. And the result of that measuring mind, analytical mind, is that we lose our innate capacity for appreciation, for that enduring attunement to joy, things as they are. And thus, there's envy and jealousy. You know, jealousy, wanting what someone else has, envy, not wanting someone else enjoying joy, to have that joy. Underneath in that envy and jealousy, because we need to understand all these states, all these oppositional states, near and far enemies, um, is the, it's unworthiness, feelings of inadequacy, not good, not good enough. So more of that soon. The near enemy, for your information, is um, is similar to the other near enemies. It's just it's a it's it's joy with a hook, and kind of attached joy. It's called in the Buddhist Pali a word that means exuberance. So it's it's like you know. We're so f- filled with a kind of joy that it's, it can be glib, it can be rather shallow. It can be, it can be um, you know, some kind of attachment there. It's not pure empathy. It's not abiding in that nurture, in that nectar of receiving pure joy. It's just something, there's some wanting there. And I, and I, and I use that word hook because if, if we feel in the body the sensations associated with these states, both the pure, you know, abiding um, metta, compassion, and joy, if it slides into its near enemy, the, the body feels a tension, or, in a, or a lunge, or a contraction, just some kind of hook. If it's that true abiding, the body just feels in total comfort, 
are in total uplift, are just in this lightness, complete lightness of being. It's in alignment with the purity of the Brahma-vihara. Re, you know, remembering this is a purification practice and what's actually a Brahma-vihara is the very mature metta, the moments where the metta is completely, it's not even close to the near enemy of love with expectation or conditionality. And it's quite far from anger and aggression. It's just that pure abiding. And that sensation is very clear as an emotion and in its body, physical sensation. So it's always a good way to kind of feel where we're at, you know, in the practice. So that's a full Brahma-vihara, you know, it's like the fountain of metta, the fountain of fearless compassion. And here the fountain of the mudita, empathetic or enduring, uh, abiding joy. There's no hook to it. Um, and like the others, just moments of it have incredibly rippling effects, immediate and long-term. So we might lose it in the next moments. We might be dealing with the next moments with um, with unworthiness. These practices are cleansing, they're purifying, so they can a moment of that kind of pure joy can easily wash up, feeling undeserving of that joy. You know, so how do we approach this? All the ways that um, we use these near and far enemies as um, defensive measures, survival strategies and whatnot, we really need to understand them. The, the approach to our experiences, you know, rather than judging them and, and feeling um, swept away by feelings, for example, of unworthiness, is similar to um, what's called you know, natural horsemanship. Uh, that Grove has studied a lot with a, a teacher named Pat Gorelli. And last year, he took me to a, a documentary some of you might have seen, just called Buck, about Buck Brenneman, who is a contemporary of Pat Gorelli's. And, um, and, and, the, and the approach is attuning to the, the horse as it is, understanding the horse, um, and, and feeling how the horse feels how it thinks, how it hurts, how it might feel its own uh, hoarseness. And tuning into its woundedness to help restore the horse feel its own hoarseness. It was as if Buck Brenneman and Pat Grelly just had these really very natural gifts, grace of being able to walk right up to many horses and the workshops they do are often with injured horses, hurt horses, angry horses, horses that have been abused and mistreated and trained roughly, gruffly, uncompassionately. And so simply to walk up with kindness and fearlessness, firmness and gentleness, the horse, like many animals, immediately knows, immediately has the instinct, knows if you're afraid or not knows if you're trying to feel where the horse is at, you know, and so if you're calm and, and fearless and firmly, compassionately present, the, the horse will, will feel that. 
in in the documentary, you know, you you can see in several cases how Buck walks right up to a very anxious, dispossessed horse, and within a few minutes, you know, has his hand up and is walking around with the horse following him like a dog, like a gentle, loving dog. And then it goes through, you know, in more detail how the challenges uh, horses of different levels of abuse. One of the most touching parts was was when Buck said why it was easy for him to empathize, to feel that empathy, that resonance with, with horses, with their pain, with their hurt, with their desire to restore their sense of hoarseness. And remembering that all these Brahma Viharas all have restorative powers. That, that's their that's their aim. You know, so when we think of them as purifying, cleansing, also to think of them that they're restoring our true humanness. You know, just like with the uh, natural horsemanship, restoring the sense of the horse's sense of its of its hoarseness. So, so Buck explained how he was a very abused child, you know, and, and very graphically told of how his father would beat him, you know, uh, sometimes every day, at least many times a week when he'd come home from school. And finally, um, social services took, uh, when he was 10, took him and his brother, who was around 12, took him away and put them with a very uh, loving foster family, you know. And and he just told all this quite openly, you know, and even said as he was healed uh, in the process of working with horses, he, he tried to heal with his father, but his, his father remained stuck. So he had to do the healing on his own and, and with his horses and with the love of his foster parents. We're all in this documentary. It was beautiful for its honesty. So that way of approaching our own our own or others' hurt and pain by this kind of attunement, this kind of empathy, this, uh, this, this way of feeling into ourselves with that horse whisperer. Actually, it was Buck Burnerman who was the model for Robert Redford's movie called uh, Horse Whisperer. Uh, he was the real deal. He was the real thing. We have that same capacity. We can call up that kind of empathy and gentleness and kindness and um, and uh, balance, skilled firmness, to so that we don't get we neither drown nor are swept away. To approach where we feel hurt, where we feel injured, where we feel unworthy. You know, that, that's the aspect of seeing how these these powerful spiritual emotions. You know, we practice them moment by moment. Each moment we try to restore that nature of humanness, of wholeness, of worthiness in ourselves. Uh, and rather than the approach of making it a project or needing to fix something or get rid of something, if our, if our approach each time is to come up with a feeling of wanting to be understood, like the horse wants to be understood, you know, and the natural horse person 
is, is genuine. It's not pretentious in any way. It's really each horse is different, like each of us. It's genuinely tuning in exactly to, in that moment, how that horse thinks and feels and hurts and wants its hoarseness to return, its worthiness to return. Can we do that to ourselves? You know, and, and that's that's the quality of these spiritual emotions, the connection of metta, the the, the fearless compassion that's not afraid of the injured horse within, and the empathy that that starts to reconnect with our innate nature of joy. When I was eleven, we 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 moved from one house to another about two miles apart in, in the, what was then the rural part of southeast Oahu, where Honolulu is. And uh, we, we moved right to the ocean. Um, and so there was the ocean on one, one side of the house and behind, uh, at that time, you know, just a valley, no development as there is now, uh, a valley, sweeping valley up to the Ko'olau mountain range. So these green, misty, uh, rainforest, watershed mountains on the one side and the sea on the other. And it was soon after this move. Uh, you know, and we weren't even yet a, a, a state. We were just still a territory of America. In fact, those of us who were born and raised in Hawaii never, have never really felt part of the continental uh, America. You know, just geographically, it's so different and the composition, the cultures and people. Uh, and yet, you know, just a, just a, a two or three years before that time, when I was 11, Hawaii got TV, black and white TV. You know, and it was a, it was a post-war years. Everything was good. You know, it was the Eisenhower years. And on TV was, uh, you know, Father Knows Best for those of you who are old enough to remember, and, and leave, it, leave It to Beaver, and Ozzie and Harriet. So if you watch those programs, you knew that life was good, and everything was okay. You know, and, uh, and people were living just how they were supposed to live, and the, in, the invention of chemicals to clean our house, and frozen foods, and all those things that made our life better. And I just remember, you know, I, just, I remember some of those things, what I remember viscerally, and still as a, as a sensation in me, I was standing outside, and in aware of the ocean on one side and the mountains on the other, and there was my home, you know, with my family living the way they do, and inside was the black and white TV with, you know, Father Knows Best and and um, all these shows telling us how happy we were, and, and all of a sudden. It was as if I just dropped into another dimension or another domain. I just felt this this surge of of this enduring, abiding joy. It had nothing to do with anything at all. You know, one moment just just had moved, changed houses, close to the ocean and the mountains, and living this uh, life in in the islands. At that time. The population was so small, everyone knew everyone. But all of a sudden, it was, had nothing, I had no part of that whatsoever. 
I felt completely disengaged from life as I was being told, you know, through TV and parents and school how it was. And I was just in, in this 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 state of grace is how I would call it later. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that it was it was significant and that I should remember it. So I repeated to myself like a hundred times, I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11. Never forget this, never forget this, never forget this. Just to imprint, because, you know, who would know what would happen later or, or you know, what I would use that for. It was, it was just something completely out of the ordinary, something quite extraordinary. You know, and then I went back to my other life, but I did never, ever forget that. And then, you know, coming across at a young age, the, the Dhamma teachings, traveling overland from Europe to India, living in India, and finally getting into to Burma, and then and learning the, uh, the the Dhamma power practice uh, and the difference between the sense of ourselves as a, as it's been constructed either by our own thoughts or borrowed thoughts or imposed thoughts or you know um, the media telling us how we should be and so forth. And something else, something else that began to remind me again of that experience of being 11 and feeling so wonderful and feeling this unbridled, natural joy for no reason at all. And, I, I, and then I began to learn that it's, it's a, in the Buddhist tradition, it's called a, one of the Dhamma pleasures. It's a non-sensual joy. It doesn't depend on what's happening. It doesn't depend on your family being perfect. It doesn't depend on you know having pleasant sense input, sights and sounds and sensations. There's nothing whatsoever to do with that. It's one of the real pure kinds of joy that we come across in, in practice, which will elucidate, for one, just the joy that begins to occur as we get quiet now on this through this fourth day of practice, quieter and a little more distant and the distractions and the intrusions, you know what we call the hindrances, uh, and that and that that solitude of seclusion, uh, separation from the hindrances, creates a very beautiful kind of inner non-sensual joy. It feels like a nectar. We feel fed by it, and you know. Other ones that follow the joy of of stillness, joy of contentment, joy of uh, wisdom, equanimity, uh, uh, we'll speak of more. But as I, you know, as I began to understand just this this initial ability to step back from the impingement of of sensory information, you know, now when we practice, we we see that uh, that um, the elemental nature can actually be uh, a language of the teachings of loving kindness of connection that light by itself you know doesn't have to form into these objects that that we're that we have labels for and associations with 
and judgments about. It can just be pure light waves and particles, light and shadow. And sound can be just pure sound vibration. But before we have a direct experience of that, most of what we see and hear and feel in the body, the mind immediately proliferates. as thoughts and associations, likes and dislikes, and we create this story, this narrative that becomes an ongoing, almost ceaseless narrative. And that's how we create the world moment to moment, so quickly we don't even notice. And Dhamma practice begins to slow us down a bit. <clears throat> we get little glimpses that there's just this moment, even if it's a moment of pain, a moment of fear, a moment of unworthiness, and then a moment of feeling that abiding joy that restores our sense of goodness, that grace of joy and, <clears throat> and power of fulfilling worthiness. The greatest affront to the to uh, the Bodhisattva when he was just about to be enlightened, sitting on the, these seven layers of grass under the Bodhi tree, and um, and being assaulted from within, although it appeared from without, by the personification of anti-joy, anti-life or greed, hatred, the delusion, and the mythical character called Mara, who first tried to tempt him off the seat of enlightenment with all these alluring sights and sounds and promises of power, and then trying to intimidate him off these seven layers of grass on the seat of enlightenment with horrific images and threats, intimidation. And then, you know, that was like using those unhealthy states, unhealthy psychological roots in all of us, greed and hatred and all the, all the formations, all the imagery uh, that issue from, from greed, all the kinds of clinging and attachment and wanting, alluring and so forth. And likewise, out of the root of hatred, all the forms of attack, int- intimidation, threat and so forth. The most powerful is the third root, unhealthy root, confusion, bewilderment. In the Pali, moha, usually translated as ignorance or delusion. We, we could say very simply that all of our Dhamma practice is overcoming the, the darkness of delusion with the light of wisdom. That's simple. Because without that veil of, of bewilderment, confusion, delusion, there is no greed and there is no hatred. There's nothing for them to stand on. If we see clearly, then <clears throat> there's nothing to, to grasp onto and not even any need or effort to let go because there's, there's nothing to lose. <laughs> you know, We already have what we need. These Brahma-viharas are already what our heart and our, and our nature is, our, our, um, our you know, human nature the hoarseness of the horse that wants to restore that from being wounded and injured and abused. When, as we're restored, as we're healed, what comes back is that worthiness. So the Buddha sat through all those attacks, and the last one was Mara um, challenging him to his right to be on the seat of enlightenment, saying, 
Who are you? Who do you think you are to be realized, to be liberated, to be the enlightened one, to be Buddha, awakened? You know, what have you done? I've done a lot of good things. I've been really generous and compassionate, and I even have a lot of witnesses. I can bring a lot of friends who can, you know, verify how generous and giving I've been. This is Mara's voice. And the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, is that's when it's said, you know, in, in one discourse, his right hand touches the earth very simply and says, Mother Earth herself is witness to my right, my worthiness, my goodness to be awakened, to be liberated. In another discourse from the Mahayana tradition, it said he just he touches his body all over, the way Michelle described uh, the happy Sayadaw, our friend in Burma, <clears throat> the monk, just verifying, just affirming this bodiness, like this the hoarseness of a horse, just the isness of our body, and then the same, you know. Uh, the elements themselves are witness to my right to be awakened. Earth, water, fire, air. When I, uh, when I began teaching 30 years ago, my biggest fear, my biggest terror was, was speaking. <laughs> you know, it, it was. It came natural for Michelle and a lot of my colleagues, or at least more natural, you know. <laughs> but I was just. I would. I'd be so terrified. It was. It was just frightening. And, and what I would feel is that I. I feel I had no voice. That I didn't. Uh, you know, no one would hear me. I didn't deserve to be heard. Thoughts like that. I wasn't worthy to share what I had learned from you know ten years of practice and and um, training with Upandita and whatnot. You know that's that's the depth of our injury, our injuries, uh, and uh, especially especially the one of feeling inadequate or not good or not good enough or unworthy. So I told I mentioned the other day how. He, I spent a month in a forest in New Zealand and for three hours every day um, as part of my practice I, I took in the stories of the Bodhisattva, the 547 birth stories. And and that was my doorway. You know, storytelling became my, my doorway. And I started telling, first, you know, I just started telling stories of of uh, where I grew up in Hawaii, and my first teachers, Hawaiian, a Hawaiian woman, and and the sea and nature, and the rhythms of of, of the sea and nature and waves and the camaraderie, surfing big waves with friends and whatnot, and um, um, and stories of Polynesian navigation because I grew up near uh, this this family, uh, we had the same housekeeper um, and that the one of the boys in that family just a little younger than me became the first Hawaiian in 600 years 
to relearn the the art of of Polynesian uh, uh, deep ocean navigation without any instruments by using their body and senses and intuition you, you know seen in the here it's really powerful at night when the sky is clear uh, there's so many configurations and stars it's, it's like there's more light than darkness and and you know the the Hawaiians just saw them all as very clear pathways of where they were at any one place in the largest body of ocean on the planet and from there they knew how to get to the Marquesas or to Tahiti or Rapa Nui you know Easter Island or New Zealand or, or wherever and even when the stars were covered and they couldn't see them due to storms they they knew the master navigators would tune with that soft gaze of the beginner's mind. It wasn't staring or looking for anything, but receiving the language and teaching of light. The difference between when we look at objects uh, and use memory and information and identify with the objects than when we simply receive the palette of light and shadow, color and form, when we simply receive the language of sound vibration rather than our habit of trying to identify, you know, is that a wolf or a gibbon or a bird or what kind and this and so forth. You know, that's our habit. And we think, well, maybe we can't help it because we have all this information. And we're here to assure you that we can do it. Why? Because there's this tremendous space of the present moment. This, this timeless present moment. You know, in every moment we have a glimpse that's a mindful glimpse or a metta, compassion or mudita, empathetic joy glimpse. This is, there's a timeless moment when sound is just pure sound vibration and not a bird, not even a thunderclap, you know, or a whinnying horse. Very, we've, we've all had this experience at one time or another. Maybe just not always recognize it. A retreat is where incrementally, you know, we learn to just make a little more space, you know, just millimeter by millimeter, or inch by inch, a little more space just around us, physically, emotionally, mentally, to feel that spacelessness and timelessness, you know, to receive the language and teaching of pure sensation. So the Polynesian navigators, they could read anything. It said that the mo- that the master navigators, and and one that <clears throat> that I'd met, who just passed away a couple of years ago, who retaught the art of Polynesian navigation. He was from Micronesia, but came to Hawaii, very silent person, teaching more like a horse whisperer, you know, more by energy, kinesthetics, by example, by emanating strength and goodness and compassion. He was able to, when there's cloud cover and, and um, darkness and, and wild sea and wild wind, he was able to, uh, to sit or lie naked in, in the bottom of one of the double hull canoes and, and feel up to five different currents of the sea through his testicles. That's pretty sensitive. <laughs> Feeling, you know, a major groundswell, for example, or the currents that follow the curvature of continents, 
are occurrence from windstorms that you know that can be quite multiple and quite confusing you know, even after all these years Nainoa today might only know two or three so it's such extraordinary way of of returning and using our body and senses as a vessel a vehicle of awakening uh, awareness and our indigenous ways of knowing So to approach whatever whatever our experience might be, to approach it with that um, attunement and that kindness and that firmness. Uh, once the Bodhisattva was born as a prince and he was sent away by the queen and the king uh, to be educated uh, and learn all the social arts and uh, political arts in, in readiness to be eventually take over uh, the kingdom. But he also learned all the martial arts and he became masterful at, the, at what's called the, the five weapons, bow and arrow, spear, sword, um, um, club, and shield. Uh, and so after his training, he, was, he went at 16, so you know maybe he was about 17 or 18, he, he left the school, the training place in Taksila, which is now in modern-day Pakistan. It's interesting, you know, because all these stories are myth-like, but they, they mention places that actually existed that archaeologists you know, are digging up even today. So our, and then he became known as Prince Five Weapons. So our, our brave prince started going back to uh, the kingdom, and he came to a forest that was blocked by soldiers and big logs and told he couldn't go through that forest because there was this danger, dangerous ogre in there. And anyone who had come in had never come out. And so, sorry, but you can't go in. And Prince Five Weapons, you know, said sort of joyfully, delightfully, what, you know? I've just spent all these, you know, all these months, 18 months or 20 months, uh, training in the arts of knowledge and culture and and um, culture and whatnot and 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 skilled in the martial arts and the five weapons I'm not afraid to go in and before they could stop him he leaped over the logs and started going into the forest and having not been used for very long you know the trail immediately got narrower and narrower and all kinds of vines and tangles and whatnot so he could hardly see the trail at all and there'd be sudden sounds of an owl or a growl of some beast, and he'd start for a moment, but then he'd he'd cool, he'd chill, he'd call up his mind. You know, he also trained in in mindfulness in the Brahma Viharas. I forget to I forgot to mention. And eventually, he comes upon the clearing, and crashing through, entering that clearing, was indeed this this ogre. It was known as the the sticky hair monster. It's huge two or three times the size of Prince Five Weapons. And he had, you know, eyes the size of saucers and ears that looked like cauliflower and uh, a nose that looked like the snout of a pig and, and teeth full of holes that birds nested in and, and breath so foul that if the Prince Five Weapons got too close, the strength of the odious 
odor would knock him down. Prince Five Weapons is my name, sir. Who are you? You know, our, our fearless, our fearless Bodhisattva said. And he was taken, the ogre was taken back. He says, well, I'm the sticky hair monster and no one comes into my forest and gets away. It's nothing for me to eat you for breakfast. And Prince Five Weapons said, you better be careful. You know, I'm, I'm really skilled with the bow and arrow. I have 50 arrows here and I can shoot about two per second. And so he made a threatening move, the ogre did. And our Prince Five Weapons pulled out, shot all 50 arrows. But he wasn't called the sticky-haired monster for nothing. So the arrow would go in, you know, a foot or so, but it would get stuck in this long, sticky hair of our sticky-haired monster, and then they would just dangle. And then he'd wiggle. Sticky-haired monster would just wiggle them off, and the arrows would be go, would be go, would fly in every direction, and Prince Five Weapons would have to use his shield to block himself. Well, that's nothing, Prince Five Weapons said. You think I'm good with a bow and arrow? I'm even better with the spear. And so then he lunged his great long spear with his strong right arm. And it went, you know, right for the heart of Sticky Hair Monster. It, it started to go in, you know, one, two, three feet. But the, the stickiness of the sticky hair was so sticky that it eventually, too, just plopped down like a useless weapon. But our undaunted hero said, well, you haven't felt the weight of my club yet, you know, and took out his club and pounded at his feet, you know, trying to bring him down by breaking his Achilles heel or break an ankle or something. But it, too, just, you know, it was like hitting a bed. It just got caught in the, in the sticky feathers of, the, of a pillow or a bed. And then he pulled out his sword and said, well, I'm, I'm even more skilled with this sword, you know, and I'll get around, I'll cut your tendons and have you on the ground and this will be at your throat in seconds. So again, he went for him, you know, swirling his sword around and dancing around. And, and all this time, the sick hair monster is he's so curious, you know. First he's angry, of course, and about to pulverize our, our young hero. But then he's curious that he's you know, doing all this. And he sees he's indeed quite skilled. But, you know, it's a big difference in someone three times the size and armored with sticky hair. So soon the sword was caught. And there's four of his weapons. And uh, I never used to say anything about the shield because except for the... I just thought of this in this story now that he needed the shield to block the arrows that were being splattered back at him. But I've since thought of the shield as, you know, our protective measures, the way we use the shield to protect ourselves from being injured, being wounded, by our own judgments or others, you know, our attacks on our worthiness. So we can see the shield as something powerful and protective. And, and whenever we feel like a shield of armor over our belly or our heart or around our neck or some vulnerable place, we can think of Prince Five Weapons and why we do have a shield and why it's useful. So finally, the sick hair monster said, you know, I don't know, there's something about you. I think I'll let you go. So I, I, I'm, in, I'm entertained by you. 
and uh, I don't think I'd, you know, probably enjoy that much eating you today. There's others I can eat. And, and Prince Five up and said, well, it's a good thing, because I have another weapon. And if you did eat me, uh, you'd be really sorry. And Sticky Hair Monster said, well, what, what weapon is that? He said, I have uh, the sword of wisdom and compassion. And that would change your life forever. You would never be who you are again. And that both frightened and then softened Sticky Hair Monster, as if a boulder moved away from his heart. And he suddenly became gentle, because this Prince Five Weapons never once expressed anything but firmness and gentleness to him, like the horse whisperer. You know, he was tuned in to the sticky hair monster's pain. And he said, you know, sticky hair, the reason why you're in all this dukkha, all this pain, is because of your behavior. You know, you've been eating people. <laughs> and you've been really unkind. And, and, and look at you, you're a mess. Your hair is sticky, you're ungroomed, you're... Your breath is foul, you have 1,500 cavities, you look terrible, you act terrible, and you speak abusively. That's why you're miserable. And you can continue in your behavior and go from darkness to darkness. It's why you're here in this state now. Or you can start to change your behavior in just one moment and start going from darkness to lightness. And by this time, you know, Sticky Hair Monster was all ears and attention. What do I do? And so our Prince Five Weapons, you know, taught him loving kindness and the other Dhamma, other Brahma Viharas and, and mindfulness. And then, uh, and then he packed up all his weapons again and he said, I'm off. But you make sure you keep up your practice because I'll be back to check on you. And they left in this, you know, paradoxical, strange friendship. And Prince Five Weapons did go home. And soon his parents passed away and he became known as King Five Weapons. And he was a good king and brought, you know, nurture, flourishing to the land, to the people. And he did one day come back to this forest. And he was impressed because all around there there was open paths and flowers along the paths and nice streams and everything nice and cultured and looking great. And he found this sticky hair monster who was then no longer sticky-haired, well-groomed, you know, cavities filled, um, teeth brushed. And by that time he was a pretty decent meditator. And, and he had created a, a nice park and people felt unafraid to come through it. And he was indeed a much kinder and gentler person and had found more love for himself that he had lost. And the story goes on that, you know, he had other lives as a rabbit, then as a deer, and then as, you know, an, an ox and various lives. And finally as a human, and uh, it's it said that he's lived somewhere around, you know, in the mountains above Taos, New Mexico. And you might find him. Who knows? He might be here at this retreat. 
Look. <laughs> Look within first. Because like with our other characters, Sticky Hair Monster and Prince or Princess Five Weapons lives in our own heart. Listen to their interaction and to their conversations. It would have been impossible for the Sticky Hair Monster you know, to change without someone that had both that firmness and gentleness, that horse whisperer approach. The horse doesn't feel fear. It feels understood. It feels its hurt being soothed. It feels its woundedness being healed and its worthiness being restored. One year in um, 1995, um, Michelle and I had a really um, devoted student. And he sat two retreats that year with us, two months in the spring and then three months in the fall. He'd taken a year off as a, um, as a, as a doctor, as a, a doctor without borders kind of doctor. He'd been working in Asia, Sri Lanka. Um, and he had a difficult time with a two-month retreat doing Vipassana. Just a lot of issues of unworthiness and woundedness come up, came up for him. So when he came back for the three-month retreat, uh, we, su- we suggested he do Brahma-vihara practice, do metta practice. And th- this is a letter I saved, from, part of a letter I'll read, I saved from him from 1995. He couldn't begin, you know, uh, in, in the um, conceptual imagination practice, we try to start with ourselves and then the better factor and so forth. He couldn't begin with himself. So he says, Yesterday, settling into a deep sense of concentration, listening to Steve speaking of getting a glimpse of our true nature, going deep inside and catching just a glimmer of the gold that has always been there. Tears again. Then I shift the flow of metta um, from benefactor to a dear friend and then back to the benefactor with a sudden surge of loving kindness I feel for the first time. And I, and I see my own face with the clarity of a photograph take the place of the benefactor's image. I'd long ago stopped trying to send metta to myself unable to generate any feeling of love for myself. I began to say the phrases, and suddenly a rush of loving-kindness, orders of magnitude greater than anything I had ever experienced before. It came in waves, washing over me and lasting for some minutes at a time. And then I began to shift the radiation of metta to those close to me, and then whoever came to mind, it was as if the experience of finally receiving metta myself had given me access to a source of loving kindness that had no limits. Why we call, call it an immeasurable. Later, I began to see that everything that was happening was unfolding on its own. The more I was just able to let go, to surrender to it, And the more I let go, the more powerful it was. But something 
had been set in motion. And I was just in constant awe and reverence of the process of this practice, which was unfolding in me, in me, in me. And I walked with tears streaming down my face. And may it never end. And toward the end of the retreat, he writes, um, yesterday, sitting with the joy of total connection, you know, by this time he just, he had learned that abiding, just the abiding way that we've been teaching you. Um, sitting with the joy of total connection and suddenly noticing the presence of myself as a small child and how it was to feel complete, uninhibited love for another. No baggage, no fear, no holding back. Sitting with the innocence of this child as he gazed in rapture at the benefactor. Unconditional love pouring from his heart to be blessed with this experience again 45 years later. And suddenly the realization that in spite of thinking all these years that I had killed that child in an effort to protect him, there he was, saying over and over, I didn't die, I didn't die. Tears streaming down my my cheeks. Everything is the same, but nothing will ever be the same again. Respecting our protective measures, you know, the shield that we use um, at, at retreats where we start to restore these Brahma-viharas, we realize, we start to realize that they are our greatest boundaries. They are the most protective shields we can have because they're not rooted in anything unkind, unskillful. They're not rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion. They're rooted in, in love and wisdom. So respecting these defenses because they saved our lives in many cases. When we come up against that stuckness, that hardness, that numbness, that shield of fear or anger or intellectualization, you know, all the ways we use not to feel. It's at a retreat like this that we start to realize how rare it is that we genuinely feel a feeling. Usually the moment a feeling arises, we, we do something with it. We get stuck. We go into a thought. We dissociate. We proliferate. We embellish. We do anything but stay abiding in feeling the feeling. So immediately the fear, for example, becomes a story about the fear. The grief becomes a story about the grief. The longing or the desire becomes a story about it. Even the old joy, I'm 11, I'm 11, I'm 11, becomes a story about that old joy. So sustaining, just for the moments that we get glimpses, we can't emphasize enough because they have such, they have such a restorative power on us and replace the old armor with the, these skillful boundaries of loving kindness, fearless compassion, empathetic joy and equanimity. So, so, you know, we realize, we see the stories, just don't hold on to them. Not expect the stories not to be there. You know, we've practiced the story, we've practiced our narratives and our stories all our lives. So they're not immediately going to fall away. But we can use 
a discerning moment of awareness. We can use the glimpse of connective wisdom or fearless compassion when we feel pain or that appreciative joy that just abides in, in, in pure pleasure for no reason at all. We, we can use that as a way to abide and just let the story be in the background like white noise, like a distant stream. We can start getting skilled at doing that. And then recognizing, you know, our own vulnerability. This beautiful quotation from Krishnamurti says, To understand truth, one must have a very sharp, precise, clear mind. Not a cunning mind, but a mind that is capable of looking without any distortion. A mind innocent and vulnerable. So vulner- vulnerability is one of our gifts of practice. It, it isn't something to, to cave in with. It, it isn't something that necessarily lead to our feelings of unworthiness. It's actually a strength. It actually allows for that innocent, open, sensitive awareness and further glimpses or further little moments of abiding in that kind of joy. So recognizing, feeling, and allowing that vulnerability, you know, just knowing when we're feeling pulled into overwhelm or when we're feeling contracted and withdrawn, just trying to find that skillful balance of staying present and, you know, the dance of exploration and rest. Exploration, opening, and rest. That rest that we wake up, that true, that genuine rest of, of relaxation, of seclusion. And then to appreciate the glimpses that we have. That's an aspect of mudita. Mudita not only means enduring or empathetic joy, it means appreciative awareness, appreciative consciousness. So all the ways we can, you know, uh, at times with wise reflection, recollect the things we do that we can appreciate about ourselves. But ultimately, it's the, uh, the most powerful kind of appreciation is the one that happens in the moment. So appreciating when we're resting in joy. You know, appreciating when we're feeling the, the, um, uh, the resistance of this difficult work. Our Upandita's teacher, Mahasi, called, you know, he said there's, there's a skillful, or, or dhamma, there's dhamma pain, dhamma resistance, dhamma sorrow, that aren't rooted in, in those unhealthy roots of, of aversion, greed, hatred, delusion. That the kinds of things that come up, there's a healthy fear. You know, like the fear that we might feel sometimes that if we let go, we'll be annihilated. Uh, it's good to feel that fear because then we just get closer to being able not to hold on when we realize that there's nothing to lose. The only thing that ever gets annihilated is greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, you, we can't annihilate uh, love, compassion, joy, and equanimity like our yogi friend, Bruce, you know, who thought he had killed himself and then realized that that glimmer of gold had always been there and cannot be destroyed. 
can just be covered when we don't know any other ways of protecting ourselves. So I'll close tonight with um, um, a Wendell Berry quotation. There are, it seems, two muses. The muse of inspiration, who gives us inarticulate visions and desires. And the muse of realization, who returns again and again to say, it is yet more difficult than you thought. This is the muse of form. You you can think of form as a retreat. You can think of form as sitting and walking. You can think of form as, you know, our intentional practice. This is the muse of form. It may be that form serves us best when it works as an obstruction to baffle us and deflect our intended course. It happens to us every single day, every sitting, every walking, every standing. It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. That's Wendell Berry. And one last line he says somewhere else, Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. (laughs) Sit with Princess or Prince Five Weapons and the groomed sticky-haired monster. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.